It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, and that's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and anywhere across the country if you download the Radio Player Canada app. And uh, just type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In 2003, the Canadian feature documentary The Corporation spectacularly unveiled the narcissistic global corporate mindset and took the world by storm, amassing 26 international awards, 10 of which were audience picks, including the Sundance World Cinema Audience Award. And 17 years later, original creators Jennifer Abbott and Joe Bakken return with a thrilling, terrifying, and oh-so-timely follow-up the new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, following two economic meltdowns, horrific environmental degradation, a pandemic, a protest movement seeking economic and racial justice, the new corporation revisits the greedy world dominating companies and the billionaires behind them who proclaim to offer themselves as the solutions to the very problem they have created. New Corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, premiered this weekend at the West Island Open Air Cinema at Ontario Place. It screens again tomorrow morning at 11.30 at the Tiff Bell Lighthouse Theatre and streams tomorrow night at 6 p.m. online at Bell Digital Cinema. Joel's book, The New Corporation and How Good Corporations Are Bad for Democracy, is in bookstores next week. And with us here on Moment of Truth, our directors, Joel Bakken and Jennifer Abbott. It's a pleasure to have you both here on the show. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, in two different parts of the country, uh, Joel's in Toronto, Jennifer is out on the west coast of Vancouver, so it's good to have you both here. Uh, Congratulations uh, on the corporation and its success. Uh, Do we say congratulations on the follow-up? It's an unfortunate follow-up that you are billing it as, uh, but one that is necessary. Um, So why, first of all, do do you feel that it was necessary to do this this follow-up to the original? Well, I kind of I began thinking about doing a follow-up uh, when we were doing the 10th anniversary screening of mm. the first film. Mm-hmm. And I realized at that time, as I was sitting there in the theater watching it, um, that three things had happened. One was that despite our film and despite protest movements and all of that, um, corporations had gotten bigger. They'd become more powerful. They'd taken more control over society. The second thing was that the problems that they were creating, the things that we were looking at in the first film, uh, climate change, uh, the crisis in democracy, racial economic injustice, indigenous people being dispossessed of their lands, all of these things had only gotten worse and, and much worse. And the third thing that was happening is that while all of this bad stuff was going on, corporations were saying they were good. They were kind of, they were saying, you know, we got the message. We, you told us we're psychopaths, you know, fair. Thanks for telling us. We've cleaned up our game. We've reformed ourselves. Now we're truly socially responsible. Now we're sustainable. And so don't worry about us, you know, don't worry about regulating us because now we can voluntarily do the right thing on our own. And let us run your schools, let us run your water systems, because we're the good guys now. 
And so I thought, wow, this is a really new and messed up world, even mm -hmm. from the one that was messed up that we looked at in the first film. Um, so we really need to start uh, having another look at this. For, for me, it was quite different because um, while absolutely I agreed, the problems we had explored in the first film had magnified exponentially. Uh, for me, it really wasn't the case that there was an absolutely compelling reason to make the sequel until Donald Trump was elected. <laughs> and that was because for me, in that moment, the veil came down. So there was no longer even the pretense that corporations and governments were acting independently. Now they were rigging the system in front of everybody's eyes in plain view. So, I mean, I think also I was in the middle of making another film, so I needed a little bit more pushing to, to make myself enthusiastic about the sequel. In addition to the fact that for the first film, I both co-directed and edited, and mm. it was just such a monster of a film. I cut that, that film from 400 hours of footage. So to wow. actually consider even wrestling another monster of a film like that to the ground took some you know fairly compelling evidence and and certainly trump's election was was that triggering event for me wow that's uh yeah that would that's quite an undertaking 400 hours edited down yikes uh well yeah okay <laughs> completely understand what you're saying there um, okay, and thank you for, for uh, uh, mentioning that, Jennifer, because I was going to ask you what your take was on that. So, um, okay, so now the two of you got back together. You have these four ingredients. You've got the, uh, as, as uh, Joel pointed out, you've got the uh, businesses getting bigger, more forceful, and more powerful. You've got climate change and the injustice issues that are going on. You've got uh, corporations now saying, we're good, we're all good. And then uh, Donald Trump steps in, steps in, he's elected, and uh, the veil comes down, as you pointed out. Okay, um, how then that you've got this story moving forward, what, what did you, you saw those things that, that sort of all put in the pot, and this all made sense to you and said, okay, where's this going, and what is this going to look like in the next, what's the world going to look like in the next 10 years? Yeah. Um, what is the world going to look like in the next 10 years? Mm -hmm. that's, a, uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think as, as filmmakers, you know, our job is to try to take all these pieces, as you so well summarized them, uh, that are in the pot and, and try to give people, in this case, in an hour and 40 minutes, uh, a kind of meta-narrative, a story arc that helps them understand how all these pieces fit together. I kind of like to think of this film and the last and, and my books as, as taking us up to, you know, 33,000 feet and looking mm -hmm. down and, and seeing the map below. You know, when you're on the ground, you can't see it all. But so, so that's our job is, is to try to generate this understanding and ideally, generate an understanding that makes people worried, that mm -hmm. makes them outraged, that makes them feel, wow, we really have to do something here. And that also gives them a kind of analytical framework 
and, a, and an inspiration to think about what it is that needs to be done. Because we're not gonna change the world if we kind of all run off madly in a million different directions. And we're not going to change the world if we follow the corporation's uh, recipe for changing the world, which is, you know, just let us do it, try to be more responsible consumers. If we really want to change the world, we have to do it collectively, we have to do it democratically. And so one of the things we try to do in our film is to give a sense of how that might come about and what it might look like. Um, in the original film, you talk about how you, uh, or how it was put forward that corporations are in fact, uh, can be treated as people or can, can be considered a person? Is that? Yes, that's true. So according to, so legally, the corporation is considered a person. I mean, Joel is absolutely the better person to speak to that point, given Joel's a legal scholar. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so if you. Did you want, do you want to go into the history of that, Joel, a little bit? Yeah, or? sure. I, I can hmm. just quickly give, give a sense of, of how we dealt with that in the first film and how that then moves into the second. Essentially, the law does two things when it creates a corporation. It says that this group of people, of shareholders, is going to be treated by the law as one person with all the rights and liabilities that a person would have under law. The thing about law is it only recognizes people as being subjects of law. And so the way to make a corporation, the only way to make a corporation, an entity that can work within the legal system, that can sue, that can be sued, that can own property, that can enter contracts and all of that, is to say, well, magically, you are a person and therefore uh, you're a subject of law. So that's one thing the law does. The second thing the law does, it says, the personality that we are going to give you, that the law is going to give you, um, is one of self-interest. You have a legal obligation, you the corporation and the managers who run it, have a legal obligation always to put your own interests first. So as a person, you always have to act out of self-interest. You always have to prioritize your own financial interests over everything else. And so the conceit of the first film is, well, if a human being had that personality, we diagnose him as a psychopath. Right. The conceit of the second film is that over the last 17 years since the first film, the psychopath has found its charm and mm -hmm. it's become a much more charming psychopath and therefore a much more dangerous one. So, so yeah, so now uh, you, you take that forward uh, that's interesting. It, it, can I ask this as a follow-up? I'm, I'm interested only because I always thought corporations could not be considered people. That's what I always thought. Is that something new? No. Um, the, the, the basic idea was back in the 19th century when the corporation was created, uh, they were faced with this problem. And that is that if you're an individual who might want to invest in a corporation, you'll give your $10 to the corporation but by giving your $10 to the corporation, you don't want to end up liable for $100 if the corporation goes and wrecks the environment or kills a worker or something like that and gets sued. So you want your liability to be limited. So you often hear about limited liability. But in order for your liability to be limited, if the environment gets hurt or a worker gets killed, they need to be able to sue somebody and make somebody liable. 
So the magic, the alchemy that the law worked was to say, okay, we won't make the shareholders liable. We'll limit their liability. We won't make the managers and directors liable. We won't make any of the real people liable. What we'll do is create this artificial person, the corporation itself, and it will be liable. So if a worker gets killed, it can sue the corporation, but all of the actual people are protected from being sued. So creating the corporation as a person was necessary to make the actual human beings not have to be responsible for what it did. And that's effectively how the law did it. Back in the late 19th, or in the middle of the 19th century, the 1850s, mm, mm. And the corporation is still that same entity today. It hasn't changed in that regard at all. Okay. Uh, Jennifer, you had mentioned that uh, the sort of thing that, that did it for you to, to finally get involved with the, the sequel uh, of this was the election of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. What was it about that that you could not any longer resist and, and had to get involved? Sure. Well, it's not as if everything changed suddenly uh, when Donald Trump was elected. You know, the neoliberal corporate policies that we explore and in many ways um, criticize in the film began 40 years ago uh, with Reagan, Thatcher, Friedman. I mean, arguably earlier, but we can identify that as, as a sort of an acceleration point. And then, you know, Obama and, and Clinton and, you know, they're deep neoliberal. So it's not as if, um, and when I say that, I'm referring to uh, handing over society to market controls, uh, Mm. accelerated privatization, uh, Mm. generally shrinking government and considering government as more of an ill, as an unnecessary, uh, making government as, as small as possible. So uh, it's not as if that suddenly changed with Trump, but as I said, what, what seemed to me, that did change was the pretense that there was, you know, governments and corporations were acting independently. And, you know, as we state in the film, you know, it's so clear when you you look at the um, members of Trump's cabinet, they're all former corporate CEOs or, or now, you know, it's revolving door on steroids, really. So for me, that just meant that there were, there was just something that could be said that was new because they no longer felt that they needed to hide what they were doing. And certainly, you know, it's not as if this is only taking place in the United States, you know, Brazil and Poland and and many, many countries around the world um, have similar trajectories, which are just so dangerous. And I, you know, my point of view right now is on the West Coast, I'm in Vancouver, and I literally cannot see across the street right now. The smoke is so bad. Mm. And, you know, it is, we are in, I mean, if we just take one example of one of our existential crises, you know, we're in an climate, we're, we're already beginning to descend into climate catastrophe when I'm, you know, quite a distance away from these raging fires on the west coast of the United States. And the air in Vancouver is so toxic, it's suggested you don't go outside. And, you know, we explore the climate 
crisis in our film and absolutely uh, put a large part of the blame on, blame on corporate capitalism. So, so that's just one example of the, you know, with Trump's election, I'm, I'm quite certain that if we have another four years of Trump, we're, we're heading for a four degree warmer world, right? And so, um, as I say, that, that just was a moment. Trump, I mean, I think for a lot of people, Trump was a moment of sort of a, wow, really? This is really happening? And, um, and many people did many things as a consequence of that. And, and I was convinced to join the film. <laughs> so. You know, the one thing that, that comes to mind, regardless of, of uh, the changes and how things have gotten in so many ways advanced from, from the original film that you made, behind all of this is, is people. People run corporations. People make the decisions that, that make these things happen. And it, it, it's surprising to me, I guess, that we have to still live on this planet. If, if, the, if the world uh, eliminates itself through, through the climate and there's no more people, there will be no more corporations. won't matter if they're around because they won't be making any profit. There won't be any people left. Yeah, I, I think, you know, you've hit on really one of the fundamental problems and philosophical questions about us as human beings and our humanity. You know, you recall there were these famous experiments by the psychologist Robert Milgram, where he put people in front of an electrical panel yes, and had a an authority figure in a white coat telling them to continuously up the voltage level of shocks mm -hmm. they were giving to an actor who mm -hmm. was pretending to be shocked on the other side. Right. And what they found is uh, what the, the study found is that people would do it if they were told to do it to the point where the person on the other side would die. And obviously in a much more, a much less extreme level, um, we as human beings tend to act in ways that the institutions we're a part of suggest we should act. And often what we do is kind of stop thinking. We say, okay, these are the rules of the game, so this is what we do. And I think that's true in sports. I mean, it's true in hockey, for example. Um, you can be the nicest person in the world. I mean, you wouldn't harm a flea. You're nice to your pets and your kids and your friends. But when you get on the ice, you might be a very violent player. And I say that as, as an example of a person who, when I play hockey, because I'm not very skilled at it, I tend to slash. And if the ref isn't looking, I'll do nasty things to other people that I would never do when I'm off the ice. But when you're on the ice, you're playing by these rules. And I think it's the same for people in corporations. When they go into a corporation, when they go to work each day, they are accepting that they're part of an endeavor where there's a certain set of rules that they have to play by. And I mean, we show this, I think, very, in some ways, movingly with the example of Lord John Brown, the former head of British Petroleum in our film, where he's talking very sincerely, and I believe him, that he cares about the safety of workers, but he prevailed over a culture that was able to a mass record profit because of the cuts that were being made to process safety mm. in pipelines mm. and on right. offshore oil rigs, for example. Yes. And somehow he could hold those two things in his head because 
he genuinely cared about safety as a human being, but in his capacity as CEO, he knew sort of subconsciously almost that he could only go so far in protecting safety as would be justifiable within a model where the ultimate goal was to make profit. So I don't think he's a bad person. I don't think he's an insincere person, but in his institutional capacity, in an institution that's geared only to serving its own self-interest, he did what he had to do. And, and so that I think is in a way a flaw in us as human beings are the ease and willingness that all of us, and I would include myself as a hockey player and in other parts of my life, um, that all of us will, will do things in institutional contexts that actually offend our own sense of what it's what is right to do. And we're programmed this way as human beings, and it's something that we need to struggle against. But I think it it largely answers your question as to how it is that these people behind these corporate machines are are able to sort of do the bidding of what the machines require. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Element FM and Moment of Truth right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is a pleasure for us to have with us uh, here on Moment of Truth, Joe Bakken and Jennifer Abbott. Jennifer is an award, uh, a multi-award winning filmmaker and media artist who uh, for the past 25 years has been making films about some of the most uh, urgent social, political and environmental issues of the day she's best known for one of the directors of the and the editor of the 2003 right through documentary the corporation as she just pointed out uh editing down some 400 hours into uh, about an hour and a half of, of film joe bakken is a professor of the of law at the university of british columbia an internationally renowned legal scholar and commentator a former Rhodes scholar and a law clerk to chief justice uh, brian dixon of the supreme court of canada Bakken has uh, a law degrees from Oxford, Dalhousie, and Harvard, and he uh, critically acclaimed book, The Corporation, The Pathological Pursuit of Profit and Power, and came out in 2004 and electrified readers around the world. It was published in over 20 languages, and it's a pleasure to have them both with us here on the show talking about their, their latest uh, film, which is The New Corporation, The Unfortunately Necessary Sequel. And uh, it screens uh, tomorrow morning at 11.30 at the Tiff Bell Lighthouse Theatre and streams tomorrow night at 6 p.m. at the online uh, Bell Digital uh, cinema and uh, uh, Jennifer, uh, just before uh, as, uh, just before the the little break there that we had, um, Joel was talking about a flaw. He was talking about a flaw in in us as people. But do you think that your your flaw uh, or that flaw you guys are trying to show that flaw extends into the world of of business and and government, and that we need to start looking more closely at that. I think Joel's point is a really important one that we tend to act um, according, you know, we, we're, we're not just free agents and we are embedded in a society and in institutions and we tend to, we're socialized according to the ideologies of those institutions. And so uh, without question, I think 
corporate ideology as we explore in the film tends towards promoting the individual consumerism, even according to Chris Hedges' um, hedonism. So, but I think of crucial importance is that as humans, we need to understand, of course, that is such a limited and uh, reduced idea of what it means to be human. And the example that we use in the film to show that is, of course, uh, the extraordinary um, response by so many people in communities to the pan in the pandemic. Uh, so we, Joel and I were both uh, insistent when the pandemic happened to actually open up picture lock. We had finished the film at that point, but really wanted to include it for so many reasons. Um, it laid bare the injustices of the system. It, it also showed the relationship between the destruction of nature and corporate capitalism and emerging diseases. But very, very importantly, it also showed us that we actually are caring, we are communally focused at times, we can be altruistic, we can be there for our fellow person. And absolutely of vital importance is that we can put other things above the economy. Like you were referring to how if we destroy the planet, well, how are corporations gonna make any money that way? It's a really good point. But you know, there's we, we need to we need to put the economy back in the place that it should be, which is to serve humanity and to serve the common good and to serve the health of the planet and other species, as opposed to the opposite. So so yeah, I think it's interesting. We we don't shy away from asking in the film, I think some of the biggest questions there are, like what, is, what does it mean to be human? And, and why do we act the way we do? And, and how can we bring out the best of humanity at this critical moment in time when the best of humanity is what we desperately need? Great. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And congratulations on both the, the first film and the, the second one. We wish you all the best with it. And let's hope that, that, the, uh, that the message gets out there loud and clear that you are bringing forward and that we get the changes that we, we need so desperately in this world. And thank you both very much for, for doing your part to do that. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, David. We appreciate your interest. Thank you. Thank you very much. And they are the uh, directors for uh, The New Corporation, the Unfortunately Necessary sequel, Joel Backen and Jennifer Abbott. Don't go away. We're going to be right back here on Moment of Truth with more. And that's going to be Neil Hetherington. And he's going to tell us about the risks and challenges faced by food bank clients during COVID-19. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in those two coordinates, one of those two coordinates, and then E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. 
And it is a pleasure to welcome back to Moment of Truth, uh, Neil Hetherington. He is the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. And we have him on uh, and back to the show because in in August, um, the Daily Bread Food Bank uh, released um, a report uh, that looked at the challenges faced by food banks and clients during COVID-19. And they talked with uh, over 200 people and clients uh, and looked at, uh, at, at the situation they were facing during COVID-19. So it's a pleasure to have Neil on and back to talk about uh, the findings that they, they had and, and perhaps maybe a little bit of an update as to uh, since that release and what their findings. So Neil, welcome. Thank you, David. Thank you very much for having me. Mm-hmm. So listen, why, first of all, why did you think it was important to, to put this together and, and put some kind of report like this together? Yeah, I think it's always important to start with why. Um, we were, you know, the end of March happens and the Daily Bread Food Bank is going full out to be able to hit our goal. And our goal was simple, to be able to make sure that every single delivery that uh, that we promised throughout the city was met on time and done safely. And, you know, we were seeing just under 20,000 families at that time uh, come to, uh, to food banks. And we were bracing, obviously, for the increase in terms of the number of individuals who needed to make use of food banks in Toronto. Um, and this is replicated in Ottawa. And, and that number surged uh, 34% uh, in, in the week uh, and immediately following the, the pandemic shutdown. And, uh, and so we were going full out. We were making all of these operational uh, shifts. We were changing how we deliver food. We were changing how we hand out and distribute the food to the individual clients. And all of that was uh, happening at a time where our research uh, individual, Talia Bronstein, said, hold on, you know, I can be helping out in terms of making sure the trucks are loaded, but I think I can help out more by doing an in-depth analysis of what is going on with food insecurity uh, and, and providing recommendations for, uh, for the government and for our community leaders so that we can um, study the moment and make sure that, uh, that we're learning from it so that if ever you know, there's a second wave that we're prepared even more so and, uh, and that we can systemically make a positive change. So I was, I was mm. very grateful that she did this and the report that came out of it called uh, Hunger Lives Here was just mm. very well done. I'd encourage people to, uh, to read it, to get more informed about what was going on with those experiencing poverty during the pandemic. And people, if, if people want to go see that, they can find that on your website at dailybread.ca. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, it, it's interesting. Of course, everyone was dealing with COVID-19, as you say. But this is a particularly uh, of interest to your clients and also the extra stresses and, and many of the things that, that when you look through the report, you, you don't necessarily think about in terms of uh, of those things, you know, uh, if you're, if you're okay, you know, if you're doing okay. Um, and, and so it was really interesting to see some of those things. There's also some interesting things in there that you, I didn't expect to find, you know? Um, but I think the other thing it's important to mention is that this is a, it's a one of a kind sort of report. So it, it really is a good example for other, uh, represents other food banks and, and, and other, other parts of the country as well. 
Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, if you think about your own experience, um, many individuals were able to uh, work from home. Uh, many individuals in Ontario were able to, uh, 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 to get by perhaps on the savings or uh, that they, they had in place. And the heightened anxiety that you had when the Minister of Health federally said, um, it's time now to stockpile two weeks worth of food. And now, now picture yourself in a scenario where you have precarity of income or you are ex already experiencing poverty and somebody says it's time for you to stockpile two weeks worth of food, but you were, you were already sort of uh, stretching to be able to mm -hmm. make ends meet prior to the pandemic and the heightened sense of anxiety that that would have, uh, have brought, uh, brought about. And so we saw a mass shift and we asked questions around uh, before uh, COVID and, and during the pandemic stress levels of individual clients and the heightened sense of, of, of stress and anxiety that they felt um, was, uh, was obviously dramatic and how they were able to, uh, to, to, to cope with that. Um, these were individuals and mo more often than not who were already in difficult circumstances um, who were often living in areas where perhaps there was overcrowding, where they were dependent on public transit to get food, and now they're on public transit to get food and exposing themselves to a higher uh, mm -hmm. degree of risk. And mm -hmm. so, um, so it's not surprising that when we overlay a map of those who were affected by COVID, um, it, is, it overlays um, almost... Uh, perfectly with a heat map of those who were experiencing poverty. And, and it's not a surprise, and this, this study confirmed that. Yeah, it, you know, when you were talking uh, just there, talking about, you know, okay, you got to put two weeks of food away. Uh, as you said that, it reminded me a part of the report that talked about the, 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 uh, the section where there are some children that would go without a meal in a day. Uh, some of those people that were, were already uh, extremely uh, challenged in terms of just being able to get, a, a, you know, a meal in a day, never mind uh, two weeks of food. So I can imagine, as you just said, about the stress level uh, of a parent in, in that kind of a situation, it, it would have been, uh, yeah, extremely, uh, ang make them very, uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress. So uh, why don't we, you know, why don't you take us through some of those, some of those findings that you, you did find? Like, for instance, um, I see one of the key findings, 34% of food bank clients uh, will be unable able to continue to pay rent for uh, four to six months uh, from four to six months from now uh, of course that is uh, that's that's a big one for everybody um, trying to be able to keep a roof over their heads uh, that's the one that I'm, I'm most worried about David um, the if you th so this this was done in uh, just in April and May and so they well, a third of food bank users were saying listen I can, I can only manage my rent for the next uh, four to six months. And so now you think about the how that uh, will intersect with the removal of SERP uh, coming mm -hmm. uh, shortly mm -hmm. in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. So we have the removal of SERP at the same time that individuals are saying, that's the time where I'm not going to be able to make the October 1st rent. And so that is um, a, a key finding um, and predictor 
of, uh, of, of a tsunami of potential evictions that will, uh, will, will happen. And so I'm, that's, that's one that obviously I'm, I'm um, uh, significantly concerned about. And, you know, from a, uh, an emotional standpoint, I am deeply concerned about uh, the frequency of child hunger. Mm. Um, you know, we saw that uh, individuals who, whose children went hungry at least a couple of days a week uh, doubled from four to eight mm. percent. And we know that that is an underreported number. Mm. So think about that. If, if you're being surveyed and saying, is your child going hungry? The, uh, most likely, uh, your uh, sense of, of pride might kick in and say, no, 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 that's, that's not happening in my family. Or perhaps your, your sense of concern about um, uh, child welfare or CAS, uh, the judgment, the stigma associated with that, we know that individuals underreport those types of numbers. And to see that rise in an underreported format is, is one that um, is uh, startling and concerning uh, to us. And, and that's, you know, hopefully will be made uh, slightly easier as individuals, as children go back to school. But we don't know how that's going to, uh, to, to, to play out. But as, as they go back to school and breakfast programs and, and, and school nutrition programs kick in, the hope is that that will decrease the amount of uh, and frequency of child hunger that, uh, that this report, uh, uh, um, uh, hunger lives here, that this report shares and, and makes so clear in black and white. Yeah, you know, again, as you were were uh, sharing information there, I couldn't help but think about, you know, we've had so much uh, uh, focus uh, during this whole COVID nineteen situation uh, about frontline workers, uh, healthcare workers, and and all those. But you know, in terms of what you do with daily daily bread food bank and other food banks across the country, you you guys are frontline workers in terms of getting basic food, you know, to, to people that are in need. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, I bet, you know, because of that, you are hearing all of those stories about the challenges that those people are coming in because though there's interactions going on with your staff, with your volunteers, uh, and these people on a daily basis. So you, you must, you, you will of course be getting all those stories coming to you. We do get the stories. We get the uh, the stories um, on a regular basis, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. Post-pandemic, we are seeing a lot of new faces. Um, mm. You know, we would typically see about two thousand new faces per month. This, uh, in, in in during the the period of the report, that number shot up to six thousand uh, mm. per month. We're seeing uh. just under twenty-five thousand families per, uh, per, per, per week. So each of those faces has a different story, uh, a story of, of um, income not meeting the expenses that, uh, you know, urban living uh, demands. And, uh, and so um, uh, difficult times, a lot of individuals who have uh, never had to make use of a food bank, who have had to cross that threshold of that doorway and uh, make a decision to put themselves and their, their kids' well-being uh, first and paramount. And, uh, and so um, we have been there for them. We have been and were uh, categorized as essential services uh, in the, uh, the province's um, 
state of emergency. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we were named that, but not necessarily prepared for it. Um, mm. So the employees here, the limited number of volunteers here, we had to reduce the number of volunteers uh, by about five, six uh, to, to make it a safe working environment. Um, you know, they're, they're put into this position of being an essential uh, service worker. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of demand and responsibility associated with that and, and weight on the shoulders of people. Um, and so I, um, as, as um, their colleague, um, felt my duty was to, to do everything that I can to be able to make sure from a, a mental health perspective, a stress and anxiety perspective, that we mm-hmm. were uh, reducing um, uh, concern about those who were serving the tens of thousands of people uh, across the, the city. We did our best on that front, and, but there's still much to be done. And uh, and I think more to come, given the fact that, uh, you know, all evidence is clear that, uh, that we will be in for another wave. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I had uh, just uh, I was, I was going to bring that up as well at the, about the stress and the anxiety that that your your uh, employees and your volunteers would be uh, uh, also uh, dealing with because of the situation and because of the stories coming to them uh, and just being in the, the situation where they are, uh, as you say, frontline workers that were uh, are putting themselves out there and potentially at greater risk, uh, uh, as you as you say, uh, when people have to the low income people they. Have have to go out more. They have to possibly take public transit more, uh, and so there's a greater risk of, of transmission of COVID-19 uh, just because of the the situation they all find themselves in. Absolutely. Now, one of the <clears throat> uplifting moments of the pandemic was to be able to see uh, so many uh, in the city and across the country come together to make sure that those experiencing poverty. Um, were, were taken care of as best as, as possible. So we saw uh, different levels of government for the first time support food banks. So we do not, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a board member of Feed Ontario, and that's an organization that uh, has not received provincial funding. But in the case of, of COVID-19, uh, the, the province came to the table and said, how do we uh, provide uh, support and funding was available for us to, to purchase food and distribute it across the the, um, uh, the, the, the province. Um, so that was good to uh, to see. We saw we saw corporations come together. Um, AMJ Campbell started to mobilize their fleet to be able to do food pickups. We saw uh, Kia Canada say, you know, how can we provide you with a fleet of of cars so that uh, employees and volunteers can safely get to and from work rather than taking uh, public uh, transit. We saw individuals uh, step up with donations, uh, monetary donations. Our food donations went down dramatically. Um, Mm. You know, people did not feel comfortable dropping off food at a fire hall or a um, uh, grocery store. And so those numbers went down uh, um, from about a million pounds that expected in March of 2019 to uh, to 300,000 in March of 2020. So... but people made up for it by by providing funds so that we could purchase food in uh, in bulk, and so that that was that was uplifting. And and quite frankly, I was moved by the uh, relentless uh, care that our, the employees and volunteers had for one another. Uh, that uh, that saw them uh, rally together as a, um, as a as a family. We spent far more time uh, here uh, than we did with our families. 
And they came together and uh, and put uh, the community ahead of self, and it was uh, it was uplifting uh, on, on that moment. So, well, this report has gone through some very stark, difficult statistics. Um, I am moved uh, regularly by the care that individuals have for people who are coming to the food bank, and uh, and and wanting to to make sure that they are receiving all of the benefits that they are entitled to, to make sure that they no longer need to come to the food bank, and while they are here, are receiving the care uh, that uh, that everybody in their right to food deserves. Mm. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. It's 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our guest is Neil Hetherington. He's the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto, and uh, we're talking about um, a report they came out with in August. It's called Hunger lives here and it's about the risk and challenges faced by the food bank uh, clients during COVID-19. Uh, they talked to over 200 uh, clients of the, the food bank and, uh, and and what is happening with daily bread food bank uh, clients is, is a strong indicator for uh, other changes at food banks across the country as well. It's a pleasure to have Neil back on the show. We've had him on the on the show before. So Neil, um, as, we, as we get further into uh, to COVID-19, uh, the report, as you say, the, the, this survey was done uh, in May, June, I think you said? Yes. Yeah. So uh, what have you seen uh, in terms of, uh, of how COVID has changed, what has happened, to how the government has brought in some things to, to help alleviate as well? It's ongoing. Uh, COVID is ongoing. The situation is ongoing. What are, what are you finding at this point in time? So what we're finding first is that uh, the need continues to grow. So uh, when this report was uh, was issued, I think we had seen about a 30, uh, 34% increase in the number of individuals coming to, uh, to food banks. That number mm-hmm. is now up to about 41%. Wow. So mass increase in terms of numbers of people. And as emergency actions are, um, are lifted, um, we are concerned that uh, that number will only increase. So as serve mm. uh, transitions to mm. employment uh, benefits, uh, we want to make sure that nobody is left behind and that uh, and that uh, adequate incomes are available to people who are unable to uh, to, to work so that they are not having to make use of, of food banks. Um, but we, we share some concerns on uh, on that front. Mm. Um, so, uh, so we are seeing um, a, a rise that is, since the report of uh, of usage, and um, and then you know I'll move it back into the well the uplifting part. So you know mm-hmm. that's a, d- a difficult statistic to 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 comprehend a forty one percent increase in food bank usage, um, but on a positive note, we're starting to go through this experience, or we've been going through this experience. Um, perhaps in in different uh, with different uh, assurities and different levels of of comfort um, but we're going through this pandemic together as as uh, globally and it has in my mind been illuminating for many people to to see just uh, the precarity that individuals uh, often live with and in and so my hope is that um, we can use this moment 
as a, an opportunity to say, we've been through this shared experience, let's make sure that we advocate for systemic changes so that, um, uh, you know, as second waves or as, yeah. as we combat poverty uh, in general, that we can, uh, we can make sure that everyone uh, lives with the, all of the dignity um, that, uh, that we should be afforded to everyone in this, uh, in this country. So talking about, you know, permanent actions, making sure that we per- perhaps um, are looking towards a national pharmacare uh, program, that as we transition back to employment, that we say, well, what is one of the best ways for us to get the workforce, particularly um, uh, women in the workforce, uh, we want to make sure that there is uh, movement towards uh, uh, child care that is affordable across the uh, across the, the, the country. Um, you know, we want to to see the the uh, poverty reduction strategy implemented and the targets that the government brought forward a couple of years ago. We want to see uh, those targets be realized. And that's going to be very difficult in the in this state, and going to be very difficult uh, given the um, fiscal uh, situation that mm. uh, that uh, we all share uh, in. There's there's a whole host of of permanent uh, items and recommendations for all levels of government that are in this uh, this report that would would see in my mind and in the mind of of the board of directors of 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 the daily bread food bank uh, an opportunity for us to uh, to to you know to build back better as as uh, has, mm. has often been been said mm. and i would hope that every listener has a, an opportunity to go to this report to see the dramatic need a, a, across the country and within their own uh, uh, community and say, how can I uh, volunteer? How could I perhaps donate if there is the means to do that? And thirdly, and probably most importantly, how can I advocate for systemic change? So how can I donate, advocate and volunteer and suddenly we start to build a, uh, a country that uh, where where nobody goes without, where nobody has to uh, visit a food bank, where everybody lives in simple, decent, affordable housing as a minimum. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, you know, Neil, as you were as you were talking there, I appreciate everything you just said there, and I and I, I thank you for for turning this around into the into the positive and looking forward to uh, to better things. Absolutely. Uh, if we can go back to to just talk a little bit about uh, since the beginning of COVID and and what you've seen not only from from numbers but I guess you know the other side of this you're in the business of feeding people so access to food I guess what I'm thinking about at this point in time is is how how um uh, how shopping or or going for food has changed you know either on a daily basis or a weekly basis uh and 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 what you've seen and how that has changed either since the beginning of covid and or through covid in terms of what you have found you know gaps that have have kind of shown up to say whoa uh how did you know this is this has really changed things for us and how we need to approach things as you were talking about going to the future there well, the, the, the main change uh, since COVID has been, you know, in, in the food bank world, typically individuals come and they shop for food at a food bank and they choose the food that they um, and their family uh, is, that's most suitable for them and their family. 
Um, what we had to do was move to sort of a pre-packed box uh, mm. for, uh, format. So mm. they came and they got their hamper of food and there was no choice. It was, mm. here's the hamper of food. And, and we're, we were hopeful that it met their um, dietary needs. Um, it, was, uh, it was designed to be able to be as um, uh, cross uh, uh, spectrum as possible when it came to nutritional uh, values and, and, and needs. But, you know, what it exposed was um, those that are, are most vulnerable, those that need the food bank the most, simply could not, uh, and, and rightly so, would not leave their homes. And so um, mm. we ended up uh, creating very quickly, I think within about four weeks of the pandemic, we had set up a program in Toronto where uh, some of the most vulnerable seniors could simply call 211 and have a food bank hamper delivered to them. And so that delivery mechanism was, was you know, a, a safe way for us to be able to make sure everybody got fed. And, and many people in the country are, are making use of online grocery uh, retailers, Amazon and Walmart, to mm -hmm. be able to get their, mm -hmm. their food. And that's a, a safer way for them to be able to, to do that. But that's not an option for people experiencing poverty. They don't have the ability mm -hmm. to pay, um, you know, those higher uh, fees for, you know, a grocery mm -hmm. gateway type of uh, um, fresh model that uh, that is 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 great for for many many people. Um, but they're not able to do that, and so um, so you know, I think that there will be some permanent changes when it comes to how we are able to provide mobile markets uh, and and personal delivery of food bank uh, items to our country's most vulnerable. Mm. Interesting. Uh, so you've talked about, I guess that that's what you're looking at is is kind of building this uh, a new model and a new a new uh, normal as we go forward. Yeah, and, and my, my hope, though, is that the new normal includes adequate and proper income supports for individuals so that you don't have the food bank, uh, you know, going out with creative, nimble solutions, but rather we're looking at how do we decrease the lineup, not just be able to feed the lineup. And so that, mm. that means, you know, advocating for those, those changes so that there are fewer and fewer people who need to uh, to 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 you know to to come to a food bank? Mm -hmm. uh, Neil, anything we haven't touched on in in terms of either the food bank and or uh, or, or the report that that we're talking about that uh, we haven't touched on yet that you think is important to mention? Well, you know, the pandemic also came at a time of uh, of significant concern um, and heightened awareness about racial inequalities um, that mm -hmm. are systemic mm -hmm. across uh, um, uh, Canada and and certainly heightened in the United States. And and this survey tackled that and 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 spoke to 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 that and highlighted uh, that reality. You know that um, in uh, in the Toronto area, um, the uh, inequity that there is with individuals, you know, of an indigenous um, uh, who are indigenous, who are um, for, you know one percent of the population, but about five percent of of food bank users. And it just shouldn't be uh, that way. The same, you know, from a uh, uh, black population, um, mm -hmm. about overrepresented in food banks by about four times. 
And, and so I think, you know, if we're going to have discussions about food insecurity, those discussions um, are, uh, um, it, it would be tone deaf and it would be uh, wrong to be, uh, to, to have those discussions absent of conversations around uh, race. And so as we think about those um, uh, permanent systemic changes that we want to, to see and have in place, um, the data supports that there is a systemic issue that we need to address. And so um, while we might not have all of the answers, I think that you know, right now coming together and recognizing um, the uh, enormous inequity and, uh, and, and, and speaking about two uh, significant changes that need to be made um, is an important first step. Right. And uh, thanks for pointing that out, Neil. People can actually see those, uh, those numbers, as you uh, mentioned, in the, uh, in the report, in the methodology. Uh, the end of the report uh, breaks that down uh, for, for people to see. So I appreciate you mentioning that as well. Neil, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, and and you know it's 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 nice to speaking to you, but it's it's unfortunately that we have to talk about uh, the needs of people in doing so. Uh, but it's a need that is that is needed, uh, and one that you are you and and the uh, the Daily Bread Food Bank is doing your best to to help fulfill and fill that need for people that are in need. And so we appreciate uh, everything that you're doing. Well, I'm very, very grateful uh, for you and for the, this broadcast. Thank you, David. Very welcome, Neil. Uh, Neil Hetherington, he's the CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto. We were talking about uh, their report called Hunger Lives Here, and it's uh, about the risks and challenges faced by the food bank clients during COVID-19. And uh, it, you know, because uh, the Daily Bread Food Bank clients, this is, uh, and, and there's report, it also uh, is an indication of other for food banks across the country. Uh, you can find that, if you want to look at that report, you can find it on their website at dailybread.ca. And we want to thank you for listening to Moment of Truth as well. And uh, we appreciate you listening each and every day right here on Element FM. So uh, until next time, I want to say uh, be well, and we'll see you then. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.